right, welcome. We're going to start a new series tonight. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This study will take us uh, 32 weeks to go through, so just before the summer of next year will be done. Um, I've got a schedule for you up here that you can grab on the way out, uh, just so that you can keep you can have an idea of where we're going each week and, and read that passage in advance and be ready to, uh, to study it together. This is the 47th book of the Bible that I've preached since I've been here. And so we have 19 books left to complete the entire Bible plus half of Psalms. So about five more years. Um, one of those books is the longest book in the Bible, Jeremiah. That'll be in a couple years from now. But it's a great privilege to study the Word of God together, isn't it? And it certainly certainly requires a lot of work um, on your part to keep your attention and to to follow along with what's going on. But I hope uh, for you, as it is for me, that it is a labor of love um, and not not a drudgery. Sorry, I need a. Hopefully that doesn't bother us all night. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me read our passage for tonight. This is the Word of God. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ, saints by calling with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So far, in the letter, sounds pretty good. Sounds like this is going to be a pretty pleasant letter. Paul starts out by uh, introducing himself, talking about the church, talking about who they are in Christ, thanking God for them. And we might think that the rest of the letter, of course, you probably know the rest of the letter, but you might think that the rest of the letter is all um, puppy dogs and roses, but but in fact, it's filled with warnings and admonitions and challenges and and rebukes. And um, so what I want to do tonight is just go through these first nine verses and I need help on the first slide. Uh, first nine verses, and uh, and we'll look at kind of the background of the book so that we know where we're going in the weeks ahead, um, but, but also study these first nine verses to see what's there. So first, we see that this is a letter from Paul, a letter from Paul. In verse 1, it says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brothers. So Paul is Paul is writing on the authority of the risen Messiah, saying, 
by the will of God. He's calling himself an apostle. This is going to become important later because they actually are arguing against his apostleship, actually diminishing it. And Paul finds out about it. And it's not like a power trip type thing, like, hey, make sure you, you know who I am. But rather, he just wants to make sure that this message that is coming to them is a message that comes on the authority of Jesus Christ. They cannot diminish what is about to be said because this is critical to their spiritual life. And with Paul, we have this one named here, Sosthenes, our brother. Uh, The church would have known him because he was the synagogue ruler. And we'll talk about this here in just a minute. But in Acts 18, Paul arrived in their city and and Sosthenes um, was kind of in charge of leading the uprising against Paul and they took Paul before the Roman council. The Roman council decided, you know what, he's, he's innocent. There's no, no charges that we can make against this man. Uh, and so they acquitted him and released him and the Jews were not happy. And so as a result, they, they took it out on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler. And, um, and so at some point, Sosthenes apparently became a believer and became part of or, or started to join Paul's team and, and was uh, traveling with him. And apparently he's with Paul in Ephesus as he writes this letter. Secondly, we see that it's a letter to the Corinthian church. So we, we know the, the author, Paul, and now the recipient is found in verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth. Corinth is one of the oldest Greek cities. It was conquered and destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., became a Roman colony in 46 B.C. when Julius Caesar established it, actually became the capital of Achaia, um, the, the Roman capital there. And just so you get an idea of what it looks like, I'm not sure if you can see that or not, but, but you have... Uh, you have Greece, modern-day Greece is right here. And there's Corinth, right in the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And between them, you have a little tract of land called an Isthmus. Uh, you might have heard the Isthmian Games. Um, that was like the second-best Olympic-type games in the world, and they were held every two years here in Corinth. And so this little tract of land is about four miles four miles wide. So if you wanted to get from the Peloponnesian Peninsula over to the main Greek uh, peninsula there, you would go this little track right here. Uh, And also, this was also a huge trade route because you have people who are coming over from the east wanting to get over to Rome, and they would come this way, uh, often right through this, this land, or if they're coming by ship, they would come through here, and in order to avoid kind of the... um, all the storms and that sort of thing, they would come and, and find harbor here and actually take their ships across the land and go through that little, that little section there. Uh, they tried to build a canal. Um, I think actually Nero tried to start a, he, building a canal in the first century A.D., but it, it actually didn't get finished until the 19th century, so the 1800s. Um, so now you can actually take a ship right through that little, little tract of land. But what that means for the city of Corinth is that it was a major city of commerce. Uh, As you can imagine, because it's a major trade route, it's also going to attract all sorts of different cultural um, backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, people 
coming there in order to get, to do trade, buy and sell, and also to just set up shop there. And so Corinth was, was known for that. It was one of the most populous cities in the ancient Near East, 600,000 people. Um, and, and the city was known for its immorality. In fact, people would often call... Sorry about this. People would often call the... Um, uh, they would use the name a Corinthian girl to refer to a prostitute. And so this was uh, a place that was full of much sin. back on um, a great target for the gospel and in fact that's what Paul saw it as and so in AD 50 Paul was on his second missionary journey in fact these lines up here are, are his second missionary journey he starts whoops, he starts here in Jerusalem and he heads up to Antioch which is his sending church and he he's, he takes off around here and and he ends up at Corinth and that's when he first plants this church. And uh, that was in AD 50. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. That was what I was talking about earlier with the synagogue ruler and the kind of the trouble. He was there for 18 months. And, um, and when they rejected him, he said, you know what? If you Jews are going to reject me, then I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, not that you can no longer accept Christ, but, but that God has called me to go to the Gentiles. But as Paul's mission was throughout his life, uh, throughout his Christian life, he first went to the Jews, went to the synagogues first, and then to the, the Gentiles. And so this, uh, his ministry there in Corinth, one of his first converts was Crispus, who was also a synagogue ruler, and probably pretty prominent there in the Jewish, um, in, in the Jewish uh, faith. And so when he came to Christ, that was one of the reasons that the Jews were, were so upset. It created this huge uproar, and uh, Paul stayed there for 18 months, starting in the spring or the fall of A.D. 50, and then he left in the spring of A.D. 52. And from there, he headed back to Jerusalem. So he headed back to Jerusalem where he kind of uh, uh, took a little break and then headed back off on, on the third missionary journey and this time he goes back to his home church again in Antioch and heads back and starts reporting to the churches and it's here in Ephesus where Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians he had intentions to go to Corinth and end up there and see them because he loved them but he, he hasn't gone there yet and so it's in AD 54 um, that, that Paul writes this first letter to the Corinthians and we call it 1 Corinthians because that's what it says in our Bibles. But technically, this is actually the second letter to Corinthians. 
And the reason we know that is because of chapter 5, verse 9. He says, what I already wrote to you, I already wrote to you about what you should do about that immoral brother, that immoral so-called brother. I already told you what you ought to do about that. And so this is really the second letter. And then he's going to send a severe letter right after this letter within probably a year or so. And then 2 Corinthians uh, that we know is actually 4 Corinthians. So really what we have in our Bible is 2nd and 4th Corinthians. Uh, 1st and 3rd were not inspired. They were not, uh, they were not something that remained. So, um, two things prompted Paul to write this letter. First, he received a report from Chloe that there was division and immorality in the church. We're going to see that next week when we get to chapter 1, verse 10. Chloe apparently is, is a wealthy woman probably a widow, and she, she and her household recognized some serious problems going on in the church. One was division, the second was immorality. And so Paul uses the first six chapters to respond to those specific issues. He's going to say, this is not something that ought to be in your church. This is not something that ought to be in Christ's church. So he responds to that. Secondly, uh, the second thing that prompted him to write this letter was that he was responding to various questions. So if you've read through 1 Corinthians in the past, you probably noticed that there are several times, and we're going to look at them a little bit later, now concerning food sacrifice to idols, now concerning marriage, or now concerning Apollos and his... So, so he's basically responding to what they had asked of him. So they have all sorts of questions they're trying to figure out. Paul's going to respond to them in the last part of the book. So the first part response to the specific issues of Chloe that Chloe brought up, immorality and division. And then the second part, chapter 7 to the end, is response to specific questions. So in short, the letter to the Corinthians is a letter filled with exhortations, warnings, challenges, rebukes. And notice how Paul begins. After these initial greetings, notice how he begins. He says in verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now again, he's going to, to, to speak pretty bluntly, straightforwardly, in some cases harshly, uh, and, and say, your sin is an offense against God. But here, here he begins by saying, you have been sanctified. Paul is confident that he is speaking to believers. Notice what he, he goes on to say at the end of the verse. With all who in every place call on the name of the Lord, of the Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So he wants to emphasize that I'm not talking to you as if I think you're unbelievers. I know who you are. You have been sanctified. You have been the, the idea of sanctified here is set apart for God's purposes. This is initial sanctification. This is justification. God has declared you to be holy. He has set you apart for His purposes. And so I know who you are. And this is fascinating in light of what He's going to, to call them to do. You need to be holy. You know, in one sense, they are holy. They have been made holy. A one-time action that happens when we come to Christ. But there's also this continual holiness that we are expected to engage in. That's what we call... Um, progressive sanctification. That is, it's an ongoing process where we work our way, uh, not work our way for salvation, but we, 
we become more like the image of Christ by com- being complicit with the Spirit, by following the leading of the Spirit. So you have this initial sanctification. You have been sanctified, but notice the next line there in verse 2. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Or probably a better way to put it is called to be holy. So you are holy. You have been made holy. You don't, that never changes in that sense that you are justified. But you are called to be holy. Okay, so you are called to be changed. Be being changed. Right? You need to allow that change to, to happen by following the leading of the Holy Spirit. God has sanctified you, but you need to be sanctified. Now, so we need to understand that distinction. And we might kind of gloss over that real quick and think, well, you know, what is this? And, and some of the greatest errors that we can make as Christians, especially in our circles, is to mix up these two ideas of justification and sanctification. Justification is a one-time act that God does judicially where He declares us to be righteous. There's nothing that we can do. Okay, justification comes by faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that we can do to affect that change. It's something that God does in us. But sanctification is absolutely a responsibility of ours. This progressive action, we are called to be holy. That's what he's saying. Kind of like what Jesus says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. So in one sense, they're already set apart. In another sense, they need to be being set apart. And then in the third sense, the final sanctification, which is glorification, they will finally be set apart. Right? We all will finally be set apart when we're glorified. That there will never be a time when we will sin again when we get to that place. And notice that those who have been sanctified depend on God through the process. The end of verse 2 says, With all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus. Here's a way that he describes Christians. Those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. This is one of the ways that that we should be described, right? As people who call on the name of the Lord. Is that something that would describe us? Is, is praying to God just an, an afterthought or a requirement or we do it when it's required? Or is, is praying to God a part of who we are? Is it part, something that describes us? We are, along with all the other believers, are people who call on the name of the Lord. So a letter... From Paul, a letter to to the Corinthian church. And then thirdly, a letter of mercy. In verse 3, we'll see a little bit more of this in the next several verses. But verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul here is about ready to lay into them. And it, it reminds me kind of, of like a father, a loving father, just saying, you know, before we talk about what happened today and what's going to happen, I want you to know that I'm still your father and you're still my son. Okay? And then he's going to rip into them. Okay? What you did was godless and what you are doing is an offense against God and it's not something that ought to describe a Christian or as my father used to say, that's not how Elworts live. Okay? We are Elworts. We don't do that. Okay? So something, there's something in the name, Right? And obviously, there's a higher calling than just my last name, but, but, and that, that was that I was a Christian that, that my dad would appeal to as well. 
And that's what Paul's doing here. He wants them to know that, that as much as he's going to, to, to be harsh with them and, and be stern with them, maybe stern's a better word, harsh seems like it's too much, but, but stern with them, he still wants to know them to know that they are still God's children. In fact, this book has the word brethren in it more than any other of Paul's letters. Some 30 times, I think, in this letter, Paul calls them brothers, just as he's about to talk to them about more sin and change that needs to happen. See, what he's trying to do, like he's doing at the beginning here, is he's reminding them of who they are. That they are not, they have not lost their salvation. They have not turned away from God fully. But, but they are living on, in dangerous ground. So a letter of mercy. Grace and peace to you um, from our Lord Jesus Christ. Really a prayer for grace and peace for them. And then in verses 4 through 9, a letter of encouragement. If Paul hasn't been kind enough already by reminding them of who they are, Paul lets them know that he thanks God for them. Specifically, he thanks God that, that God has richly blessed them. And, and some, just some great verses to reflect on here. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. What Paul wants to focus on here is that they have enjoyed great spiritual riches. See that word enriched in verse 5? And, and what he wants them to see, eventually, he's going to show them, that they've actually become fat on God's blessings. They've, they've actually come, become a little bit too comfortable with God's blessings and started to, um, it started to move them to a place of pride. Kind of like David, right, that we've been studying on Sunday nights. And the problem for them was that they had become ungrateful. They had drifted in their mindset away from God and His gifts and toward the world and, and kind of an entitlement mentality. Like, yeah, I know who I am in Christ and I know all these blessings have come to me, but you know what? God has to do that, right? I mean, I deserve it. See all the things I've done for Him? We, over time, can become entitled and proud of what God has given to us. The gifts of God that were meant to to humble us and to provide for us can actually turn into some kind of an idol or something that we dismiss as, as something that's not that great. Paul says the enrichment of the gospel is confirmed in your lives because you accepted it and it changed you. Look at verse 6. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So you received these gifts initially and it actually had a change. In you. It, it, there's a confirmation there. And one expression of that enrichment is found in verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says you here, he's not talking about each person individually. You individually, you individual believer, you're not lacking any gifts. You have all the spiritual gifts. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you, plural, you, church, are not lacking any gifts that are necessary for life and godliness, for this holiness that I'm about to call you to, this unity that's not there right now. You have every gift you need. The problem is that you've gotten your, mind, your, your focus off of 
off of Christ and His gifts and the humility that ought to come from that, and you become proud. The basis, uh, the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them in verse 6. And then notice in verse 8, it will be confirmed in the end. So they can be confident that this will continue. Who will also confirm you to the end? So that is the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 7. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they can be sure that God's going to finish the work that he started in them. And the basis for this final vindication is found in verse 9. And what is it? How can they be sure that that they will be confirmed in the end? Verse 9. God is what? Faithful. God's faithfulness. God will be the one who continues to make sure that they have what they need to accomplish His work. God has called them as a church to accomplish His purposes, and God's given all the equipment they need, all the spiritual gifts, all the resources they need to accomplish their work. Their job as a church was to keep Christ central. And that's what the focus of this, these first nine verses are all about. It's about Christ. It's about their focus being on Him, the grace that He's supplied, the sanctification that comes from Him, the change that happens through Him. That's the focus, and really that's the focus of the whole letter. It's Christ. Christ must be central. So a letter of encouragement. Finally, it's a letter of reproof, and this really is seen in the rest of the letter which we're not going to get to tonight, but I do want to uh, summarize and maybe point out a few verses along the way. Here's what I think the theme is of, um, one way of stating the theme, I should say, of 1 Corinthians. A local church divided against itself cannot stand. A local church divided against itself cannot stand. What the church need to realize, what we need to realize and remember is that the church belongs to Christ. Right? We are Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church in the sense that you own it. Um, it's Christ's church. Christ owns it. He bought it. He bought us. He purchased us with his own blood. The church belongs to Christ. The church is set apart by God and for God. Right? We saw that in verse 2 sanctified for His purposes, and the church is kept and directed by the Holy Spirit. So that all sounds good in theory, right? Christ owns the church. God set the church apart for His purposes. And the Holy Spirit's kind of the, the, the agent of change. He's the one leading us to where we need to go. So that all sounds good in, in theory. And yet, when we look at this church in, Corinthian, in Corinth, and we think about our church or other churches like ours, right? We see that the church is divided. The church is unholy. The church is unloving. In fact, the famous love chapter in chapter 13 is not really a positive statement. It's actually a rebuke. Because throughout the whole letter, he's basically telling them, you are arrogant. You are unkind. You are keeping records of wrong." And so in chapter 13, when he gets there, he's going to say, you can do all of these other acts of service, but if you don't love, you have nothing. And the point is, you are not loving right now. So, unholy, unloving, and divided. So what happens? 
Christ's church, God set it apart, Holy Spirit's directing it. Where's the disconnect? And the disconnect is not on the part of God, is it? Right? I mean, there's only two parts to the equation. God, He set the church apart. He bought it. Christ bought it with His blood. Holy Spirit's provided for us, given us the spiritual gifts. Is God missing something? Does the division and the, the hate and the immorality arise from God's side of the equation or the church's side? Pretty easy to answer that question, right? So there's something missing here. And what Paul wants them to know, and I think what the Holy Spirit wants us to know, is that because there is division, because there's immorality, because there is rampant hate in the Corinthian church, they need to get their focus back on Christ. They need to follow the Spirit's leading toward unity. You see, the, the Spirit is, is, is leading without coercing. He's leading, and we're not following. And the nature of God is that He's made us to, to be able to choose, to make choices for ourselves. So he doesn't, he doesn't twist our arms into doing what He wants. He leads. He compels. He does that through His Spirit. And yet, for some reason, we, like Corinth, often don't want to follow. And one of the reasons that there was so much trouble in the church is because of the individualism that was rising up in the church. And this is one of the things that's going to become clear as we go through the letter. That people were not concerned about one another. That's the point of love, right? It's loving God by loving one another. We're more concerned about ourselves, individualism. So when we come to take the Lord's table, for example, in chapter 11, you had all this social structure going on and the richer people in the congregation were eating, taking part of the Lord's Supper, not waiting for the poorer people to come. They would just do it. Paul says, we are all one body in Christ. You need to wait for one another. You see, it's turned into this individualistic thing. And, And how applicable is it today for our American churches? You know, we can customize almost everything in our lives now, right? You can push a button in your car, if you have a new enough car, where you just push a button and it it puts all your settings to where you want. All your radio stations, your seat, your mirrors. You can customize what you listen to. You don't have to listen to the radio anymore. You can get your podcast and, and just listen to your, basically your own radio station meant for you. You know, you can watch the TV shows and movies you want instead of waiting for commercials and all that because you have a customized list of things that you like. The same thing goes with food and everything else, right? And so sometimes we think that that's the way it ought to be when it comes to our church. That my relationship with God, really it's not about the church, it's more about my relationship with God is about me. And that's part of it. We don't want to miss that. We don't want to minimize that. But, but we've become, I think, a little bit too individualistic. And in the process, we've made Christ to look as weak. As if His model for spiritual growth and spiritual life is not going to work. 
you know, these people are slowing me down. And so I'll just have it my way. I'll listen to the sermons I want to listen to. I'll sing the songs that I want to listen to. I'll have my service when I want to have it. Not taking into consideration the church as a whole. The local body of believers. We see ourselves as strong. Christ is weak and and we move away from this firm foundation that has been set for us and move to our own human ingenuities. And as a result, all the power that we were looking for in the spiritual life is gone. Because our floor has been moved out from under, under us or we've stepped out off of the floor, our foundation of Jesus Christ. So much help and encouragement in this book, but also much reproof and rebuke that will be good for us to consider as we think about our own lives and our own church. So let's think about the structure. Uh, these are the three main, thing that Paul, main things that Paul is trying to, to get them to see. Unity, see that in chapter 1, and uh, chapter 1 through mainly chapter 4. Then chapter 5 and 6 we'll see um, morality or holiness. And then love. How does this look? What does it look like when I show love to my brother or sister in Christ? So let's take a look at the structure real quick and we'll look at some verses. I mentioned that the the book is, I think, neatly broken down into first responses to Chloe's reports. Let me just show you Chloe here. Um, I don't have a picture of her, but in verse 11... For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. So Chloe's the whistleblower. She's going to be in trouble when she gets back to church because they're going to know she was the one who did it. But she's concerned about the division and the immorality that's going on. He might have gotten a report from Apollos or some others just to see what kind of spiritual temperature uh, was there at the church and and was shocked. And that's why he's going to have to be so, so stern with them. So first, in chapters 1 through 4, reports of division, he responds to these reports of division. And then chapters 5 and 6, reports about immorality and lawsuits. The immorality is the man sleeping with his father's wife. The lawsuits are, you have two Christians suing one another from the same church, suing suing the other person in a court before an unbeliever. Paul's saying, really? So he responds to that sort of thing and, and gives them some help. And then the rest of the book is really about responses to questions from the congregation. Apparently they had sent a follow-up letter. Um, you know, Paul was only with them for 18 months. I mean, there's only so many things that you can cover in 18 months. And then he passed it off to probably Apollos or Timothy or Priscilla and Aquila. And, and so they're teaching as well. And, and um, Paul wants... Paul wants them to be rounded in the scriptures, but they're a a fledgling church, right? They're just fairly new. They're only a couple of years old, and the gospel is brand new to them. You know, like for us, if we became a part of a church plant that was only a couple years old, well, we would have a lot of understanding under our belt because we've been in church. A lot of us have been in church for, for a big part of our lives. But for them, this is all brand new for them. And so they're learning these things as they go. And so they have a lot of questions. First... Uh, in fact, turn over to chapter 7. I want to show you kind of some of these divisions that help show that 
Paul seems to be answering questions that they have. First, in chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things about which you wrote. So it's like he takes a, 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 a clear transition from chapters 1 through 6 about these issues I heard about, division, immorality, and lawsuits. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about them. But now concerning the things, about you, the things that you wrote about, first, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And we'll talk about what that means when, he get, when we get there in chapter 7. Chapter 8, uh, actually chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. So apparently they were asking about that as well. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. He's going to talk about those uh, responsibilities that we call those personal liberties. I think that's what I put. Yeah, personal liberty. Chapter 8 through chapter 10. And then in chapter um, 11, verse 2, he seems to, to make another transition, talk, moving away from personal liberty and moving towards orderliness and worship. In, in chapter 11, verse 2, he says, Now I praise you um, because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand. And so then he goes on to talk about um, women ministering in the church and, and so on. There should be some kind of order in in the the worship service. And then in chapter 11, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, he says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better but for the worse. And this is what I was talking about when these social classes were ignoring one another and having the Lord's Supper at their own separate times. And then in chapters 12 through 14, the unity and diversity of spiritual gifts Chapter 12, verse 1, notice this, this familiar phrase, now concerning spiritual gifts. So I, chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning those things that you wrote to me about, and then now concerning, now concerning, now concerning, and he gets to chapter 12 and says, and, and oh yeah, about spiritual gifts, let me talk to you about those for a couple of chapters. And then in chapter 15, the resurrection of believers. Again, he uses this word now. He doesn't put concerning there. But now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. There again, you see the word brethren, as I mentioned earlier. see it uh, two verses earlier in chapter 14, verse 39. Brethren, he's constantly using that word to remind them that he still has confidence in them. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning, uh, what is it there, the collection. Concerning the collection for the saints. Chapter 16, verse 12. But concerning Apollos, our brother, here's his itinerary. I want you to know about that. And then the end of the, the book is basically just about uh, final, final exhortations and greetings to the church there. So let me conclude by just saying um, that we, like the Corinthian church, has everything that we need for life and godliness. We have everything that we need for life and godliness. Chapter 1, verse 7, there, there is no spiritual gift that, that you don't have. You have everything that you need in order to accomplish the purposes that I've set out for you to do. We have been enriched by God. He has sanctified us. He has set us apart for His purposes. 
He has granted us a standing before Him in Christ. He has gifted us with His Holy Spirit. He has given us every spiritual gift that we need to sustain and to grow this church spiritually. So in short, we are lacking nothing. You know, we might look at around to other churches and say, well, they have this, and they have this age group, and they have this program. And, and what we know from the Scriptures is that we are lacking nothing that we need for life and godliness. We have been enriched. And so we ought to, like Paul, thank God for those things. So as we go to prayer tonight, I want you just to consider uh, some verses that Paul put on our our prayer sheet for tonight, verses 4 through 7 of chapter 1. And I'll hand those out in just a second if you don't have one. Uh, 4 through 9, excuse me. And the reason for this exercise is partly because we just finished uh, thinking about this last week, praying the Bible. But but also, uh, it'll be good for us to consider these verses in light of the people for whom we're praying tonight. And so we we ought to be able to thank God for His enriching grace that He has given to us individually and people in our group, our church corporately. And so as you're praying, uh, use use that as kind of a springboard for your prayer, fuel for your prayer, uh, so that we can give thanks to God for one another in this way. But what happens when we lose sight of God's goodness and the blessings that we have from God. What happens when we become ungrateful and lose our focus like the Corinthians? I think the answer is that we become individualistic, we become proud, we become consumers rather than providers, we become divisive, and our division will arise from, I think, our lack of holiness and our lack of love. And all those things are dangerous for a local church. And in the end, we're not going to be able to pass the blame or we would be unwise to pass the blame to God as if it was His fault. You know, we were missing something. Or, you know, you, you brought about this conflict that, that we couldn't overcome. Any division, unholiness, hate in our church is because of us. We need to own up to that. And, and we need to move on from that. Praise God that he hasn't, he hasn't wiped us out. He's been gracious with us. And so we have, a, we have an opportunity to, to find and see our sin and, like David, respond with repentance. All right. Well, I'm excited to go through this study with you and um, pick that up next week. And I have prayer sheet for you and a schedule. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we looked at tonight?